You're listening to the Solution Focus Podcast, the official podcast of the UK Association for Solution Focus Practice. And I'm your host, Alan Parry. In this episode of the Solution Focus Podcast, my guest is Dr. Mark McCargo from SF Work. Mark is a world leading speaker, consultant, and facilitator. And he's the author of several books on solution-focused methods in work, business, and organizational settings. In today's episode, Mark will be talking about solution-focused brief therapy version 2.0, what it is, how to spot it, and why it's important to know the difference. So a big welcome to Dr. Mark McCargo. Hello, Mark. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for coming on. Hi there, Alan. Good to be with you. I, I, I know you want to talk today about uh, solution-focused brief therapy version 2.0, but just before we get into that, um, I'm sure a lot of people in the solution-focused world know who you are already, but for those who are coming across solution Focus for the first time, just give us some context in terms of uh, what it is that you tend to get up to. Yeah, so I found solution-focused practice in 1993. Uh, I was sort of setting out on a career as a management consultant at that point. I was a management person, um, and I got intrigued by this idea of solution-focused practice being quick and efficient and crunchy and pragmatic. Uh, and I sort of fell in love with it, really, and I spent the last 27 years um, trying to take the ideas of solution-focused therapy and move them into the world of management, coaching, organizational change, and so on, where they're having quite a big impact. And I've written books about that, notably The Solutions Focus with Paul Z. Jackson, which was the first business book about solution-focused work, and also helped to start the Soul World community, uh, which is the kind of group, international group of network of people who use solution-focused ideas in organizational settings, which is still going uh, 16 years after we accidentally started it by having a conference. So, uh, <laughs> uh, But in the meantime, I've got involved, interested in the theory and uh, the philosophy of solution-focused work. And so I think perhaps I have a little position as a one of the uh, people driving the thought leadership and philosophy of solution-focused practice as well, because I, my background was in physics originally. I have a PhD in physics. And so I've always been interested in, in how, do things, how do things work and what's going on and how, therefore, can we improve it? And I think there's some very interesting questions in the solution-focused world around that, which led towards the developments that we're going to talk about today, I think, or me, me starting to see some of those developments and noticing there was something worth talking about. Yeah, it's interesting that you've got that kind of um, scientific background because this, even the whole concept of version 2.0, it's, it, it feels almost like software engineering, doesn't it? Well, it's, it's of course, the, the term is taken from the software world. When yeah. you have a, the idea is, you know, when you have a version, an, a version update, it's a sort of major upgrade yeah. or a major change. So you have little changes which are called 1.1 and 1.2. But then when you have a major change, you call it 2.0 or something. And uh, well, so what I'm trying to say here is I think there is a major change emerging, has already emerged in the solution-focused world. It's not so major that we need to call it something completely different, but it is worth noting as a kind of point of um, quite major readjustment uh, within the within the way we think about the field, potentially, potentially. Yeah, well, let's get into that then, because that's a nice a nice segue in. What, you, you talk about solution focused brief therapy version two point two point zero. So, what would you say that is, sort of as a as a quick overview, and also why why is it important for us to begin to categorize and draw the distinctions? That's a really good question, Alan. So, um, here's the thing: solution focused. Brief Therapy 1, the original solution-focused brief therapy, appeared, most people would say, I think, around about 1988, uh, with the appearance of Steve DeShazer's book Clues uh, being really the first statement of a new kind of practice. And his previous books were kind of 
building on family therapy and systemic therapy. But in the Clues book, you have the first appearance of a new kind of therapy. And a lot of people, rather including myself, kind of learned to do solution-focused practice with that book in one hand and the client in the other sort of thing, <laughs> um, and, and working very closely. But if you go back to it now and have a look at it, um, it what it's giving is a very, very um, – it's a very therapist-driven model, and it draws a lot, of course, on the background of um, uh, family therapy, systemic therapy, strategic therapy, things that were around uh, before that. And it's very much about the interview is uh, leading up to the therapist deciding on an intervention and then presenting it to the client. So that's what you mean by therapist-driven, that it's it's still a lot on the therapist, even though it's, it's solution-focused. It's a lot on the therapist, absolutely, yes. It's a lot on the therapist. And the point of the questions is to give the therapist information uh, on which to build their intervention. Right. Uh, and at that time, that was quite normal. That was very much carried over from the previous versions of brief therapy, like the MRI problem-focused brief therapy model, which Steve and Insu and others had kind of come out of uh, and had learned along the way. So in a sense, this was nothing new at the time. And MRI was a a kind of almost like a a preceder of Solution Focus, wasn't it, based in Palo Alto, who started to look at therapy slightly different and then they built on it to create Solution Focused. That's right. And, and so the MRI project, the Mental Research Institute, was an offshoot of the Gregory Bateson Research Project, started by Don Jackson and John Weakland, who was Steve Deshazer's mentor and supervisor throughout, uh, until Weakland died in 1995. So very, very long relationship. Yeah. And, and the interesting thing about MRI is that they started to, they were the first to look at the therapeutic process, not as the search for psychological causes, but as a sort of real-time behavioral, actional um, change process. And so they started asking questions, and this was back in the MRI days, questions about concrete, specific, behavioral, observable detail. Concrete, specific, uh, observable behavioral detail. And they were very interested in that. And they they were interested in it because that got you out of the realms of psychological theorizing. Yeah. And it got you away from what's his motivation, what's her drivers, what's their emotion. (laughs) It got them away from that and into what's going on. And um, so this idea of interviewing people with a focus not on what were you thinking, what were you feeling, uh, what made you do that? Uh, how were you abused as a child? All that sort of thing. They weren't interested in that. They were interested in what was happening now and what was happening in the, the quote, problematic situation so they could change it. Yeah. So they threw away um, the whole archaeological dig, really. They did. They did. They were the one, the first ones to throw away the archaeological dig. And, and Steve DeShazer and Insu Kimberg and others kind of built on that idea, but then rather than trying to look at the problematic situation and change it, Stephen Insu uh, start, started to discover, they say serendipitously, or they said you know, by chance, yeah. that if you don't look at the problematic situation, but you instead are, start asking, when are things working? When are things less bad? You start to immediately find uh, information about how the, the clients are producing situations which are more like what they want than the problem. So the idea is then that, that they, we, we continue asking about specific behavioral, concrete, descriptive information, um, but based around, not around the problem situation, but based around the, uh, well, this was in the beginning in SFBT 1.0, around the exceptions around the uh, the times when the problem should have happened but didn't. Okay, so when, when they're looking at exceptions, then they're looking to when the problem wasn't there or when the problem was less. Yes, exactly, exactly. And that's the kind of key development that leads into solution-focused brief therapy is not trying to examine the problem situation to change it, but to try and examine the exceptions, the times when the problem should have, should have happened but didn't, to see how did that happen and how can we make that happen more 
uh, and how is the client able to do that or invo um, uh, evoke that for themselves? So this is SFBT 1.0. It's, it's we're taking all this specific concrete behavioral descriptional uh, conversation from the MRI model, but now we're focusing it on exceptions. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and it's interesting, if you go back and look at the Clues book from 1988, the miracle question and the idea of a sort of hypothetical solutions, is it's just about in there, but only just. And it's very much a kind of backup technique if you can't find exceptions. Um, and these days, the miracle question and the idea of talking about a better future, a preferred future, is such a big part of what we do that it's very interesting that in, in this very first in, incarnation of solution-focused work, it's hardly there at all. Yeah, that is and interesting, like, yeah. I mean, because, it, like you say, it is something that solution-focused practitioners use a lot of, but you're saying that in the, in the initial book, Clues, by Steve DeShazer, it was kind of there almost as a backup plan. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes, very much so. If you can't find exceptions, then talk about hypothetical solutions is basically what he says. Um, and, and I think that even, although immediately people started, I think, to sense the value of talking about a better future, a preferred future. And, and then the miracle question becomes more and more important over the years in the work until you get to Steve DeShazer's last book, uh, from 2007, after he died, which, of course, is called More Than Miracles. Yes. <laughs> so people, are, uh, uh, there's an assumption, I think, particularly in the United States, that the miracle question is solution-focused practice. <laughs> and he's saying in the title of that book, no, no, there's more to it than that, you know. Of course there is, and we, we all know that, but the, the book is aimed at people who, who might not have had that understanding. Well, just so just, just to intervene very quickly, Mark, for those who might be coming to Solution Focus for the first time, can you just outline what the miracle question actually is? Okay, well, the miracle question is about um, go something like this. Suppose we finish our conversation today and you go home and finish your day as normal and uh, in the end you go to bed and you go to sleep. Uh, and then in, while you're asleep, a miracle happens like that. <laughs> and, and, the, and the best hopes that you, you have are realized, or perhaps the problem has vanished in the old version. Um, and everything is, is, becomes better. But you're asleep, so you don't realize that it, that's happened. Yeah. So the question is, when you wake up, into this new world of the miracle. What's the first tiny sign that you'll notice that tells you that the miracle has happened? And then you go on to kind of build a picture, if you like, build a, a day in the life of the client with the solution happening, with their best hopes happening, with the problem vanished, whatever. Um, but it's done in very in this very detailed, observable, behavioral, concrete, descriptional terms. Yeah, that, that's, a, this practice. that's a lovely description. Thanks for that, Mark. So this is something that really had its had a very small appearance in clues, but but very quickly yes. became valuable and used by solution focused practitioners. I think so. I think so. And, 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 I'll be, and it kind of caught on quite fast in, in practical terms. And I, I'm, I haven't quite mapped where it crossed over, but but it, but it becomes it goes from being a kind of backup technique to being a kind of the first port of call very often yeah. uh, in a solution-focused interview. Once you've established best hopes or, or a contract or a platform or whatever it is, and this is another change, actually, that we've seen, the importance of you know, establishing this, this, this contract or theme for the work, then very often these days it's the miracle question, it's the better future that the practitioner will, will go to. Um, and, and so we've seen... So the thing about SFBT2, which I'm saying I think is, is, a, is a, a sort of shift that we've perhaps seen rather slowly since 1988. If you look at 1988 to where we are now, there's all sorts of different versions. If you imagine a spectrum from SF1 to SF2, 
There are a few people who are working at around about SF 1.9. There are a few people working at about SF 1.1 who I occasionally meet at conferences and feel a bit surprised about. And there's lots of people in between. So this is not a you do one or the other. There are elements that I think have come into our work since it started, uh, which have become more and more accepted. And we're now at a point where it's good to have another look at what are we doing now compared to what did people call solution-focused brief therapy in the early 90s and say, goodness me, actually, it's, it's, it's kind of got a different feel about it uh, for now. And I think there's a reason for that. And um, the big thing is, I think, in how we think about what the therapist is trying to do. I think this is the big change that has sort of percolated along. Uh, in Solution Focus 1, the therapist, as I said at the beginning of this conversation, the therapist's role or the practitioner's role is to get information from the client to construct an intervention which they will then give to the client, having done things like had a break, consulted with a team perhaps, yeah. given some confidence. Um, so the purpose of the interview, the reason the therapist is asking the questions, like the miracle question and exceptions questions and scaling questions, is to construct this intervention of what the what the, the client should try out, should experiment with. Because these the intervention will be the therapist telling the client to do basically do more of the things that seem to be working for them. Yeah. Um, whereas in SFBT2, there are some people, and um, uh, my chums at Brief in London are some of these, uh, but there are others as well, who are now getting further and further away from giving an intervention, much more to saying, no, the conversation is the intervention. And that when the conversation comes to an end, we, we don't need to give an intervention because we've done the therapy in the, in the actual conversation as well. So in the conversation about the day after the miracle and, and, and how come you're that high on the scale and what would be signs of being one step higher on the scale and all that stuff that people will be very accustomed to. What are, what are we doing here? Are we asking these questions to construct an intervention, SFBT1, or are we asking these questions to do what I call help the client to stretch their world? Mm and explore sort of the various different realities of the day after the miracle and the times when things are better uh, on the scale or, or whatever in concrete behavioral, descriptional, uh, interactional terms. Because that actually is what is generating change, the change. Mm. That is the change. So... Whereas in the first version of SFBT, the client is the, the therapist is listening to construct an intervention. In the second one, they're asking the questions just to help the client, for the client to hear their own answers. Yeah. So the therapist is not listening with a view to trying to use the answers later on. Uh, the therapist is listening to, uh, to uh, their role is to encourage the client to go further, more detail, more yeah, so perspective. The, the, big, the, the big difference then seems to be who's making the intervention then, doesn't it? Because in the first version, as you're describing it, it's on the therapist to kind of listen for the answers and, and be able to hand across an intervention that the client would be wise to do. Whereas in the second version, you're just asking the questions and it would be up for the client to then come up with any intervention based on what they've yeah. learned from, from listening to their own, their own answers back. Listening to their own answers, and, and as they listen to their own answers, in a way, their world is changing. Yes, their, their world is stretching, uh, and I'm using a definition of world here, which I think Ludwig Wittgenstein would would recognise. Comes from a field called ecological psychology, which is about the world as interactions, and this is well before the uh, the MRI and Gregory Bateson and the interactional view. This is from the early 20th century. Um, and the uh, work of Jacob von Uxkull, who uh, introduced the idea of we see the world uh, in ways because we can interact with it. And if we can't interact with something, we don't really see it very well. And we see the world in terms of how we can interact with it. Um, 
And so the world is the sum of all the possible interactions that you have. Right. Very, very interesting model. And so and he, he draws a distinction between the world as it looks to a human being and the world as it might look to a little sparrow. Yeah. And a human being can do all sorts of things, like lift things up and, and you know hide underneath things. But the sparrow that can't do that because it's very weak, thing, but it can perch and it can fly and it can move and it can look for little things to eat. Um, and so it's a fascinating question about how the world might look to a sparrow, but the sparrow doesn't see the same things. Yeah, that's true. The, that, we, that we do. Um, and so, so you can think about this in terms of the tiny details that we love to get to in solution-focused conversation. And as the client gets more and more detailed, they are kind of preparing themselves to interact differently with with the world or actually the world is changing and the client is changing and the world and the client change together because the thing we're working with is the interface between the client and the world which is the potential interactions yeah i love that description you know mark as you've as you've described it there because that that is what we're doing in the therapy room isn't it we're kind of and that's what the miracle question does um it gets people to look at, at at what it might look like if the miracle happened and their best hopes were realised. But there are an awful lot of inter, interactional questions that we ask in Solution Focused about who else would notice, how would you notice that they've noticed, what would they see you doing. So this, this kind of interactional world that you've just described there is exactly what happens in, in the therapy room with a client. Exactly. It is. It is. Um, and it used to, so we ask the same kind of questions in SFBT2, but we're asking them for a different reason. This is this is the, the shift I'm noticing and yeah. I'm trying to draw attention to and point to, which is in the, in the good old days, you ask these interactual questions to get away from the psychological archaeologizing, as you put it. Yeah. Whereas actually what we're now seeing is that asking those questions is itself quite a therapeutic, a strong therapeutic intervention. Um, and it's not that this is a sort of preparing the client for the, for the real thing, which is what the therapist is going to tell them. It, this is the work. And it feels to me a little bit more like sort of um, uh, physiotherapy uh, than psychotherapy, because we're sort of, if you, if you imagine when you, if you've got, a, a, say, a, 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 an aching elbow, I'm looking at my elbow now, and you imagine it exercising, the arm around the elbow to to make it move further and help it to move further and further and, and work the joint and help the joint to to get stronger. When we're asking these detailed questions about interactions and who else would notice and what would they notice and what would you do when they notice that and all that stuff, it, it's it, and, and we're going around you know, through this detail and perhaps around it several times. It feels to me a little bit like this idea of exercising my elbow to make it stretch further, make it move further. Um, and so, so, so this is this is. It's it's interesting that the questions we ask are very similar to SFBT one, but we're asking them with a slightly different head on. Yeah. Um, uh, to 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 in the thinking that actually our role is not to be listening to do something clever. Our role is to keep the client working. Keep the client stretched. Keep the client <laughs> thinking about the detail, the next step. Who else would notice? What happens next? Uh, and that is the thing that stretches the client's world. And then so when they walk out of the, the therapy room or wherever it is, things are already different. Yeah. But we don't quite know how different and, and, and in what ways they're different. So we have to wait until they come back next time to sort of see how they've experienced this new stretched world. And we, of course, do that by asking things like what's better, yeah. what else. else? Uh, and what we're asking them to tell us about is, is their experience of this new world as opposed to the old world that they came in complaining about. Yeah, so we're finding out how their world is stretched, basically. Exactly. Yeah. We can never know in advance. This is why I like the idea of a stretch. Yeah. Not a re-engineering it's not we are kind of carefully reconstructing their world. No, 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 no. It's much less precise than that. It's a stretch. And the idea of a stretch is you sort of stretch something, but then it sometimes shrinks back a bit. 
and you can never be quite sure uh, how uh, what which bits will take and which bits won't. So so uh, a stretch and then it might shrink back and then we stretch again and it might shrink back a bit. You never quite know the impact of the stretch until you've uh, until you've until the client's gone and lived with it for a bit, and then you see how they are when they come back. So you, the the key distinction then is is that we're asking similar questions but with a different head on, and you've identified certain ways in which that manifests. You know, in terms of some of the key developments, you you've identified six or seven different. Um, emerging strains of of um, version two point zero. I wonder if you'd like to get into those. You know, what are the things that you notice that looks different from version one point to version two point Sure. So this is all uh, written up in a paper that was published in the Journal of Solution Focused Brief Therapy, uh, Volume Two, Number Two. It says twenty sixteen on it, but that's because the Journal of Solution Focused Brief Therapy got a bit out of kilter. Actually, it was written in twenty seventeen. Uh, but it's around and about and on my website and other places if people want to go and read it. This, so the key distinction is, is, is that thinking about this descriptions as the therapeutic intervention. Yeah. The creation of these descriptions in the future, the present, and the past, descriptions of better. Uh, this is the therapeutic intervention. So that's the sort of overarching one. But there are a number of other things that go along with that which uh, I've seen, and I'm not proposing this is what ought to happen. I'm saying I've seen this happening. Yeah, you're observing yeah. rather than yeah. giving a call yeah. to action. Yeah. Yeah. And so try and make the distinction. So here's, here's, here's some of them. Um, in the old days, people used to focus very much on the questions, uh, particularly the miracle questions, scaling questions, perception questions, yeah. things like that. Um, whereas I think what we're now learning to focus on, and, and People have been doing this all along, uh, but I want to make it clearer, is, is uh, if you like, whole chunks of conversation. So the power of the miracle question is not simply in the miracle question. It's in the whole 10, 15, 20, whatever minutes that follow from that. Yes. Of doing all this, what else, uh, who else would notice, what would be the next tiny sign that something was happening, and so on. So... Uh, and people, some people talk about this in terms of tools rather than questions. I've been using this idea of tools myself for well over a decade now. Uh, so the, the miracle question is, is, is the start of a, a piece of conversation, if you think of as a tool. Other people, uh, there's, uh, Chris Iveson uses a rather nice art gallery metaphor where you have different rooms and there's a future room and a past room. And these rooms have images on the walls. And you can go and, and, and the metaphor is of the client and therapist together wandering around this art gallery, looking at and constructing uh, different images of moments in the future, moments in the present, moments in the past that seem to connect with the client's best hopes. So, so, so you're looking so, really at moving whichever metaphor you use, you're looking at instead of focusing on the question, focusing on the chunk of conversation that happens as a result of the question. Exactly. And so the value of all this what else and who else would notice and all those kind of things, I call them conversation expanders in my work these days. These are actually very valuable solution-focused questions. But if you go back and look at the old books, you won't find a lot about that. Um, because they were there, but, but if you like, they sort of seem, they seem a bit of a second-rate thing. Was actually, I think this is what creates the change. It's all this tiny digging into the detail that we can do that, that is really the engine that, 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 that drives, the, uh, drives the whole process. So these undervalued little questions like what else and who else would notice and what will be the first tiny signs and keeping the client going and going and going and going and going. And even when they're saying, I don't know, I haven't, how am I supposed to answer that question? I have no idea. You keep them going. Um, and so, so – People say we follow the client. Yes, we do. But we also hold the client to stick with our questions for a while, even if they're finding it a bit tough. Mm. Uh, and if we're doing that, then we must have a sense that these questions are, are doing something useful. Um, so it's, it's trying to value these little tiny things that keep the conversation going uh, as much as the big questions like the scaling question, miracle question, and, uh, and so on. 
And, and what else have you noticed? Because I know you you've, you talk in terms of a change from goals to best hopes as well in terms of version two. Yes. yes. So, the, so version one of Solution Focus very much has construct a goal around uh, as part of it. Um, uh, whereas I think what we've seen now is many people use this idea of best hopes um, as a starting point. Um, I, I think that it's really important and my, in my experience, I call this a building a platform with a client, which is something about defining the topic, defining the theme. What are we talking about here? Because we're not going to talk about everything in your entire life. Um, we're going to talk about something. Um, and, and, and it should be something that's important, important enough for us both to put some energy into and something that the client feels is important enough that they, want to, they would like better um, now. So, so I think, in, 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 in I come from a management background, as I told you, and in, in, in management, in business, goals, goals are things that you measure yourself against. So we will sell a thousand widgets in the first quarter. Mm. That's a goal. Um, whereas I think we're talking about something that's much hazier than that. Usually, people don't have goals, and we shouldn't. We don't want to hold them to have goals because you can fail with a goal or not. I wrote a blog a long time ago called Goals Can Put You in Jail, with jail spelt the, the British way of G-A-O-L-E. Like a mistype um, of goalie. <laughs> well, yes, yeah. exactly. exactly. Uh, and, and, and so so I don't think we want to help people have goals. I think we want to have help them have, if you're like, a direction, a topic, mm. um, a hope. And hopes is one very elegant way of getting towards this. Harry Corman has written about the idea of a common project, common between the, the, the client and the therapist that we're going to work on together, a project. What's yeah. the project about? Um, and, and so for me, this is a much more open thing. It defines a topic and a direction, but it doesn't, if you like, set a goal in terms of I want to get this far down the road by this time. Um, and uh, in my world, that's what a goal implies. So I don't think we, we uh, so we can argue about what a goal means. But it seems to me that we've we've seen a lot of moving to away from having a goal to defining a project or defining a platform or defining your best hopes or making a contract or something. Um, to uh, um, to, to, to as a basis for the work. And my own experience over many, many years is if you have a solid platform like this, the, the other questions make a lot of sense. Mm. Whereas if, if, you, if you don't have a solid platform, then when you say you ask a miracle question, what, what's the impact of the miracle? We don't know because we haven't really got a solid platform. So it gets all fuzzy and crumbly and confused. Um, I suppose as well, like um, like one domino hitting another, when you have more focus on things like um, the miracle question and best hopes and those kind of things, rather than the problem, then this change that you mentioned earlier on in the conversation, where you're moving away from exceptions and towards instances, yes. makes a lot more sense too. It does, that's right. So, so um, in the old days, in SFPT1, it's very much about exceptions to the problem. Because to find an exception to the problem, you need first to define the problem. <laughs> um, whereas, and, and this struck me and Paul Jackson when we were writing the solutions focus. We thought, well, this is a strange thing because y we want to be solution focused, but we're, we're keeping the problem in the room with this idea of an exception. So we, we came up with a word called counters, which is things that count, things that matter. Uh, examples of the solution happening anyway and then brief independently came up with this idea of instances of the solution happening anyway so it's you don't need you don't need to have in in a way um an exception to a problem can be any old exception whereas an instance uh is an example of something more like the thing that you want more like your best hopes um, and so we're, we're getting rid of the problem even earlier. And once we've got this platform, this contract, this best hopes, we can then orient the work towards that. And immediately you can start to look for instances of that or times when things were a bit more like that. And, of course, scales, scaling is a 
uh, a great way of doing that. So suppose the thing you want is 10. What's the highest you've ever been on the scale? Oh, yeah, I was at the seven once. Okay, in- interesting. Tell me about that. Mm. And then we can dive into this thing and have lots of little behavioral, tiny, tiny conversation uh, around that without ever needing to know what the problem what the problem was because we're oriented towards the thing we want. And indeed, solution-focused means, if you dig into it, I think, orienting towards what we want, not orienting away from what we don't want. And that turns out to be a really important distinction. It was interesting as well when I, when I read your paper, Mark, that um, in terms of some of the changes that you've noticed, um, some of the changes relate to the endings of the session's um, not just in terms of what they look like, but in terms of how the ending of therapy itself is. Yes. So, so I mentioned earlier that, that, that Steve and Insu took a lot of their framework from the field of family therapy yeah. and systemic therapy, and this had where you had a, a, a team of therapists behind a one-way mirror looking at the therapist in the room with the client to try and see the interactions going on and then the therapist would have a break and they'd come out of the room and into the team room and discuss the intervention and what people had noticed and then go back to deliver the message of the team to the client this is a hangover from family therapy now i've done that i actually sat in rooms with steve shazer doing it yeah uh, way back when and it was sort of normal but actually nobody um, Outside of university family therapy departments, hardly anybody is using Teams anymore because it's hugely expensive. Hardly anybody is using one-way mirrors anymore because it's a bit spooky. (laughs) Um, uh, It's just a bit – so outside of a few specialist places, this just isn't happening. And so if we're getting away from that and we're thinking that actually the conversation is the intervention, we don't need to present the intervention, so then all sorts of things we don't need anymore – we don't need a break. We don't need a team. We don't need a one-way mirror. We don't need a conversation. We don't need a message. We maybe therefore don't need the barrage of compliments that used to precede the message because um, the, bar- the barrage of compliments, the purpose of that was to put the client into a sort of positive mood uh, so they would be more likely to accept the intervention that was going to be delivered. Right. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't do compliments. I think compliments is a really important part of our work, but we yeah. maybe don't need to do this sort of ceremonial heap of compliments at the end. Yeah, so and not as a ritual, but more as something that you pepper in during the session. You pepper in, exactly, yeah. exactly. Very powerful thing to compliment, and I'm not saying we should not do that. Um, so so we can kind of get, get rid of all these hangovers of family therapy. Um, and that brings us much more to what pe- most people are actually doing now, uh, which is not using Teams, uh, not using mirrors and all of that stuff. And so the and break then, then just, to, just to clarify, that when you talk about there being a break, the therapist would then go behind the mirror and talk to all the people who'd been looking and they'd, they'd design the intervention together. Is that what, would, what the break was? Yes, in, absolutely. That's right. And, um, excuse me, my phone is ringing, and I hope that uh, somebody... Yes, there we go. Um, You're a very popular man, clearly. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes, so way back when, that's right. And and in the days of MRI, model brief therapy, and in the days of family therapy, and it still happens now, in some family therapy clinics in places like Canada that I'm in touch with, and in the the original days of solution-focused work, this was how it happened. Now, it goes to show that We've advanced, you know, we've advanced, we've come on. We don't, most of us don't do that anymore. In fact, there's probably a generation of practitioners who never even dreamt of doing it. But that's how it was. And when the very first research definition of solution-focused practice was developed in, in 1997 at the European Brief Therapy Association meeting in Bruges, uh, where I was uh, a member, uh, the break was one of the six elements that... that Define solution-focused therapy. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, so it shows how we've kind of how times have changed and how things have moved on. Um, because if you're not going to do an intervention, you don't need a break. Me. Yeah. So, so, so this, and and then there's the question of how how do we present the client with the choice of coming back? And one of the things that I think solution-focused therapy has always done is sort to rebalance the power. of 
relation absolutely between the client and, mm. and you're trying to give the client more power now it's not handing you can't hand it all over because you're the therapist is a professional and they they have a position but we're trying to balance out that sort of therapist client power relationship in more in the client's favor and so whereas a classical in classical therapy you would say right same time next week then or three times a week for seven years if you're doing <laughs> uh, analytical therapy. And, and, and you would insist on that. Uh, we're now much more in a position of saying, uh, would it be useful for you to come back? Would you like to come back? When would you like to come back? Um, and it kind of much more being in the hands of the client to decide how and if they want to carry on. Um, and now there may be reasons for mandatory, other reasons why there has to be another session. But very often there's a choice about when and there's a choice about um, uh, on whose terms it will be. Uh, and I've, I, I've noticed in my own work as a coach, um, a lot of classical coaches love the idea of weekly sessions, possibly because that means weekly paychecks. As well. <laughs> Whereas my, the people I work with, I say, when would you like to meet again? And, and, and they often say, oh, about a month. Yeah. Two weeks to a month. Seems to be people i work with they seem kind of like that yeah same with me actually yeah i've noticed this and so we so we you know so my you know i i'm, I'm taken on sometimes as a coach I, i'm lucky enough to be to coach the ted fellows these are brilliant young scientists and artists and activists oh, wow. that ted organization um finds and uh, and part of what they get is their ted fellowship is a coach and i'm lucky enough to be on the roster of coaches to work with those wonderful young people and it's amazing privilege to do that they're yeah. so fantastic but we do this and, and and they get 10 sessions uh as part of their thing and many of the coaches take their 10 sessions up in three months but mine usually take more than a year to do their 10 sessions um and i think that's good because they're getting a sort of sustained support on their own terms uh uh, for for a much longer period, and it's not that we are taking ten sessions to solve a problem or work with a thing. Or usually, each of our coaching sessions is about something different. It's about something that's emerged or some priority that has risen to the top of their pile that they want to deal with. So it's not taking ten sessions to deal with a a psychological problem. It's it's the same support to de- deal with the things that life deals them. <laughs> uh, and the issues that, that emerge for them, which is I, I love that way of working, and, I, and I'm seeing that uh, that sort of thing perhaps is coming coming more into the therapy world as well. Um, but the point the point of this is that it's it's up, you know there's a big choice for the client about, and we should be offering that choice to the client about uh, when's enough. Uh, I suppose this follows on, though, as, as well from shifting away from goals to best hopes, doesn't it? Because one of the things that I found interesting in your paper is when you were talking about the whole process of ending therapy, you, you made the point that it's not necessarily when goals are met, but when the client is able to carry on under their own steam, which is a big distinction. I really like that. And I think that's in a way that's always been there. That's always been there. Uh, Alan, um, uh, Steve DeShazer always used to say that every session could be the last. Yeah, and 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 you don't know when's enough. And this, of course, he's what he's trying to do is take the power away from the practitioner, who would in the end say it will take you at least sixty sessions to fix this. So therefore, you're going to have to pay me sixty times before <laughs> I'm prepared to let you out of my clutches. Yeah, so we're moving away from that. And this was all, this has always been in brief therapy. Away from that towards the client will decide when things are better enough that they can go on under their own steam. And in a way that if going on under their own steam just puts them back with the rest of the humanity, because going on under our own steam is what we all do. (laughs) What we all do every day, you know, life deals you problems and difficulties and upsets and more or less, most of us kind of deal with that under our own steam and work through it. Yeah. The analogy Uh, that comes to mind for me is like, when when a car breaks down and you might ask your neighbour to give you a push, but then when the engine splutters into action and off you go, you're not at your destination yet. But at the same time, you you don't really need your neighbour to keep on pushing the car anymore. Uh, that's right. Yes, yes, that's a nice metaphor. When it the car fires up finally, 
uh, and, you, and, and you're away. That, that's it. That's a nice metaphor. I hadn't thought of that particular one. <laughs> it's a good one. I like that. Yeah, so so it's very much about, you know, uh, but this has always been there. In a way, this is not new. Yeah. But it's something that we, you know, sometimes solution-focused folk don't like talking about power because it's a big word and it's sort of getting into the abstract and it's getting away from that behavioral, detailed, descriptional, concrete conversations that we like to have. But actually, I think this is one of the the the, um, the key elements, the key things that solution-focused work does has been doing over the last 20, 30 years is rebalancing yeah. the power more with the client. I think that's absolutely uh, right. And I think that's the very element of solution focused as well as other stuff that attracted me to it. You know, the idea that the therapist got much smaller in the room. Yes. Yes. And the client gets much bigger. Absolutely. Uh, and, and so it's a genuinely joint thing with the client in, in, in some ways in the driving seat, particularly you know, as to when they feel better enough to carry on their lives. And, and our goal is that they should feel better enough, more or less, as quickly as possible. Um, uh, so we're not going to be the ones who say, no, you need 10 sessions to do this. We never know how many sessions it will take. Now, there are a few occasions. Bill O'Handlon used to say he had somebody he'd been doing brief therapy with for 10 years. But uh, he, he had, so brief <laughs> therapy is the mindset, not a not a description of a number of sessions. Yeah. This has always been the case, I think. Um, but it's good to remind ourselves about that. So in terms of these these changes then that have emerged from version 1.0 to version 2.0, do we know whether version 2.0 is bringing any beneficial changes, say, to the client or in other ways? Well, that's an interesting question, isn't it? So, so the reason I've written this paper is I think that there are many people whose work is drifting in the direction of SFBT 2.0. And there are a few who are quite close to it, and there's lots who are kind of moving on that way. I had a conversation with Peter de Jong, who was in Sue uh, Kimberg's long-term collaborator on, on writing and training and teaching, and also micro, as a great microanalyst. And uh, he says, he thinks Insu was working at about SFBT 1.6, Right. At the end of her life, yeah. Um, uh, so, so uh, Insu and Steve, I think, were themselves starting to move in this direction. Um, so, but the reason I wrote the paper was, as I say, if there are people out there who are still doing SFPT one, what they're doing is quite different mm-hmm. to what some people are now doing, and we need to make the distinction. It's time to make the distinction, um, and we. Uh, so that's the first thing you say. Look, there is this sort of second version, um, let's be aware of what it might be. And once we've made the distinction, now we can start to investigate, is it any better? Uh, so I, so I, I have no idea whether it's better or not. I suspect it, it might be a bit better. But it, it has some differences of, uh, of practice. So as people are looking, at the re- uh, looking to do in research about the evidence-based of solution-focused therapy, your point really is that we need to know what we're looking at and we need to know what we're researching, whether it's classical or whether it's this new emerged uh, yes. version two. Absolutely. And we can now start now there's a name for version two. We can start to sort of research it. Um, and people might even want to do projects which, which do SFBT 2.0 and see, see what the impact is. Um, uh, my hunch is that it would be even better than SFBT one. A hunch, not a scientific hypothesis, um, but also uh, it's um, uh, oh, now. It's also quite feasible, I think, that um, the SFBT two has a way. It, uh, it has an answer to this question: How does it work? This is a question I've been going around posing for the last several years in the solution focused world to anyone who'll listen. How does SFBT work? And I think we're, we're moving, there's, the SFBT 2 has a really good answer to that, which is this idea of stretching the world. Mm. And detail of the descriptions stretch the world of the client. And, and so we have a, a, an answer to that. In SFBT 1, I think it was, we were much more into an, uh, an interventional model, which is much more sort of mechanical 
and rearranging pieces, the practitioner rearranging the pieces of the client's life for them, um, which which is perhaps, and it, and it was to do with behavioral mechanism, uh, primarily a behavioral mechanism. And I think that um, in a way we've been having it both ways for a long time. You know, we've been avoiding the question, is it behavioral or is it world stretching? Mm. Um, and uh, Steve DeShazer used to tell a story about how he was interviewing a family with a teenage boy and they got partway through the interview and the teenage boy said, just a minute, are you asking us these questions so you can know the answers or are you asking us these questions so we can know the answers? Wow, what a great question. And, and Steve sort of chuckled and moved on <laughs> and uh, hedged, hedged his bets. <laughs> um, but I think in a way the teenage boy was onto it even at that point. And I, and I think that we are in uh, a better position now to kind of explore what it means if the answer is so that the client can hear the answers. Yeah. And I think, and I think we, you know, and I think actually in a way it's more researchable. It's more easily researchable because we've got a hypothesis about how it works. Therefore, we can try new things. We can develop practices and we can see how it goes. It gives us another sort of, another burst of energy, I hope, to, to go on and develop these, develop these things even further. Well, thanks so much, Mark. It's been a fascinating conversation. I could talk to you all day, but I'm, I'm aware that you need to shoot off pretty soon. Um, so thanks very much. It's a, been a really comprehensive overview of, of how things emerged and, and how things have emerged since they, they first got started as well. But before we go, where can people find you? Um, so my website is sfwork.com, sfwork.com, uh, and I also have a page. Uh, there's lots of articles, dozens of articles there and various blogs and all manner of stuff. Um, I'm based in Edinburgh in Scotland these days, thoroughly enjoying it, and the Edinburgh Festival's on as we speak, which is mm. even nicer. Uh, I also have an academia page on academia.edu, which has all my papers and also references to books i've written and edited uh, on that which can all be downloaded for free so um uh, and my latest work uh, and leadership work around leading as a host uh, not a hero which i think is a nice parallel with solution focus ideas and this idea yeah. of rebalance power that we talked about uh, there's a website hostleadership.com and there's a book about that as well so hostleadership.com sfwork.com and my page on academia.edu all great sources of uh, free information and papers and articles and so forth. Wonderful. Well, thanks for being so generous with your time. And um, I look forward to seeing you again, Mark. Thanks very much, Alan. I've enjoyed it. Cheers for now. Take care. Bye. You've been listening to the Solution Focus podcast, the official podcast of the UK Association for Solution Focus Practice. To find out more about us, visit ukasfp.org. That's ukasfp.org. Now, our best hope is that you'll spread the word by sharing the podcast with your friends and on your social media. Even better would be to rate us on Apple Podcasts so it's easy for others to discover the show. And if you'd like to contact us or even be a guest on the show yourself, just write to podcast at ukasfp.org that's podcast at ukasfp.org until next time thanks for listening and goodbye